Hey folks, boy do we have some housekeeping to do. You probably noticed that there hasn't been a show the last two Mondays, and that's because 14 full days ago my internet went out here in Guadalajara and it didn't come back until pretty upsettingly recently. I have Telmex, which is a company owned by the former drug kingpin Carlos Slim, and it's not famous for its service. So I let everybody who's checked the Facebook know what was going on, but if you're just engaged with SFD through the shows, a total lack of internet and Mexican cyber cafes understandably not liking it when you upload huge files on their connections are the reasons that we've been out of touch for a little while. The good thing is that I had a show recorded and ready to upload literally five minutes before the connection went down, which is this show and I'm re-recording the intro right now, and I kept writing new shows even without internet. So here's the way things are going to go down. We're going to just eat those last two weeks. It's a crummy hand, and I'm sorry about it, but every once in a while, that's what Mexico deals me. To make up for it, I'm going to release the December news show this week, I know, I know, both on Patreon and on the podcast. Then, I'm going to take one of the shows that I wrote on the off time, about monopolies in the American economy, that I think is really, really good, and that will be a Patreon news show for January, with a very short exclusive window, and it will come to the podcast very soon also. And then we're going to have to change the way things work. I'm going to have to wind down Patreon-exclusive offerings. What with the new job at 50 States of Blue as a Michigan correspondent, I don't know if you guys remember that, some journalism that I want to get done before I'm out of Mexico and on to law school, and the show, the actual SFD show, I'm just not going to have time. So if anybody feels like that's a good reason to bail on Patreon, I totally understand. And thank you for the help so far. Bruno continues to be a champion of SFD, and I appreciate his efforts like nobody's business. Everybody else, get on my Twitter and let's talk about stuff. All right, I'm John Coombs. We're talking about economies, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part you can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. 
And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Dad and I get into these conversations while I'm home where we ask, what's the point of a company? What is its purpose? I think for a very long time, because he gave his best to General Motors and it returned the favor in kind, that Dad had a kind of base faith that the purpose was to provide the best possible product at the best possible cost to the consumer. One of the questions that drove him as he strove to implement Kaizen and lean manufacturing and all of the things I've talked to you about was, does the customer want to pay for that? Sometimes the answer to that question meant fighting the UAW, which has some fairly arcane and probably wasteful rules about segregation of jobs and who can work on what, when. And sometimes it meant fighting for the UAW on safety and training, because as far as he could see, the consumer doesn't or shouldn't mind paying for a car that nobody had to die or get maimed to make. But Dad began to see, especially in the latter half of his career, that his take on things was far from universal among the managerate at GM, and might not even have been a majority opinion. Those two-year managers I talked about in the maintenance show, the ones who would come into a functioning body shop Dad had set up, would look at all the extra money spent on safety and maintenance, and would cut it all. Those guys seemed to be responding to some other idea of what a company was for. To them, a company existed to generate profit. The quality of the product was incidental, and only relevant as it related to volume of purchases. For Dad, it had always been the other way around. Some arbitrarily acceptable level of profit was baked into the cost of a truly good car, but the car was the point. The whole idea of GM confused me as a kid. Not that people made or bought cars, but I'd be at the dinner table and my folks would talk shop. Was GM number one in volume this year? How was the Shanghai GM joint venture doing? SAIC. What about India? If U.S. sales are falling, at least they're picking up for Opel in Europe. And I remember asking one day, Dad, what's the point? Say GM's number one next year or for the next 50 years. Well, then what? What's the end game here? I remember him not liking the question too much, and I more or less now know why. The point's to make the best cars. The being number one is just an excellent metric. But the question I'd asked, though I was far from realizing it at the time, was much bigger than either of us had thought. I was struggling to see, for the first time, what the point of an economy was. And like profit and cars, the point of any individual company was only incidental to the larger end, the larger economy. Let's stick to individual firms for a minute, though, because that might let us get to the bigger picture more easily. What's the point of General Motors? Why exist in the first place, and then why... In the second, command the lifelong loyalties of people like my dad, who more or less loved his job, and even folks like my mom, who more or less did not. From one perspective, dads, a guy who loves cars like some people love birds or art or sports, it's to make great vehicles, even the best vehicles, so that people can use and enjoy them. Easy. All the other stuff about money is relevant only in as much as you're covering costs and making just enough profit that the shareholders let you keep doing what you're doing. The two-year managers who were in the habit of ruining shops and plants for short-term cost-cutting, they may or may not have been conscious of it, but they were responding to a very different idea of what the point of GM was. 
It's a perspective that has become our society's de facto economic value system. The point of a company is to generate profits for the owners, the shareholders, with the byproduct that executives who do so move up and get more and more of their compensation as stock options, which need an even higher share price to be vested. GM is an engine for profit, and everything else is incidental. Now, there might be a million more perspectives, but I only see one other strong contender, and that's that the point of GM is to employ people, and maybe also to employ people at a reasonable wage with reasonable benefits. That's the perspective held by a lot of people on the line nowadays, and it was absolutely their perspective when the big three ran entire towns in Michigan, like GM in Pontiac and Ford in Dearborn. It was a deal. The company was there to provide, and the townspeople gave their lives laborers in return. It isn't that insane of an interpretation either. For example, in 2008, when we bailed the banks out, it wasn't to save their employees. It was because they controlled the economy. But when we bailed out the automakers, it wasn't because we couldn't get cars from overseas, because we absolutely could. It was because the automakers employed so many people in this country. Right now, the big three, decre- <clears throat> right now, the big three directly employ almost 200,000 workers. And if you count all the suppliers and dealers too, we're talking about literally millions of people. To the government, at least at a certain moment, the point of GM and the rest was very much to put folks to work. Even hard-nosed capitalists give some credence to this idea. If you come at capitalism as a negative force, they'll tell you, well, look what it's done for the world. Look at China, where, chiefly through joint ventures with the West, like Shanghai GM, which opened in the mid-1990s, millions of people have been raised out of poverty. That is, maybe not all the time, but at least when we're trying to defend capitalism, it seems like very much so the point of a company is to employ people and to pay them reasonably well. Just to note, officially, Dad's team wins the debate here. According to GM, its purpose, i.e., quote, who we are and why we are here, unquote, is, quote, we earn customers for life. Our brands inspire passion and loyalty. We translate breakthrough technologies into vehicles and experiences that people love. We serve and improve the communities in which we live and work around the world. We are building the most valued automotive company, unquote. If you're counting, that's three out of five for a quality of car, one out of five for employment, and one for share price. I think in reality, though, these three sometimes conflicting and sometimes related ideas about the point of GM and companies exist in tension. People working for short-term profits may make things more efficient, or they may hurt the cars or the workforce. People moving towards the best cars and preserving quality employment might hurt the bottom line. In the few instances when the company spends too much on the cars, like maybe... General Motors' experiment with Saturn, the profit seekers reined it in. Profit seekers push jobs overseas and fire tradesmen until the quality of the vehicles at home becomes untenable and they have to hire and improve conditions in the U.S. But what I was trying to figure out at the dinner table way back when, and what I'm working towards now, isn't the situation as it stands. We've pretty much done that already, and we're only 1,200 words in. If we take time to note that the two-year managers and profit-seekers have been clobbering the other two views since at least the 1980s across the whole economy, we've pretty much sewed this thing up. What's more difficult and much more interesting is figuring out what the right answer is. Not, what is the generally accepted point of a company, or more broadly, an economy, but what had it ought to be. Now just a moment here, because this distinction may well be important, especially given that the commentariat is finally producing some evaluative argument on these shows. 
I just got done making a descriptive claim. I made statements about the way the world is. And if you're going to argue about the show, and you should, keep that descriptive stuff separate from what's about to follow, which is going to be normative, the way the world should be. A normative statement evaluates. It says that this thing is good, that one bad, this ugly, that beautiful. It says basically there is a norm, a rule, and either this thing hits it or it doesn't. Now, like I said, our country has de facto hit upon a norm with which to evaluate at least publicly traded companies. Do they turn a profit? If yes, good. If no, bad. If yes, lots, even better. Especially in the internet age, that norm has expanded a bit to will they turn a profit, which is why apps can have astronomical share prices before they've made any actual money. The reason I keep saying de facto about this situation is that we stumbled onto it rather than decided upon it. We didn't sit down and choose at some point that profit would be the moral law of our land. The way you can tell that's true is if you leave the big picture for a minute and drill down on specific cases, our priorities change. When Dad talks to me about what he did at GM, which was, basically, to diminish short-term profits by reinvesting what would have otherwise been profits in his shops, something about it just feels right. Something just feels right when, rather than siphoning off the extra money and shunting it to shareholders, a company plows it back into research or safety or training or maintenance. That feels good to me, and I'm guessing to some proportion of the audience, too. Which means that there's some other norm rather than profit by which we're evaluating these actions. Ditto when we like it when Google puts huge amounts of money of what would have been profits into research and other uncommercial ventures. Take the converse, too. Walmart has historically been one of the most profitable companies of all time. But when we discover, for example, that those profits are the result of ensuring that all hourly employees get their hours cut to 35 a week to avoid any benefits obligations, that Walmart managers in 2011 and 2012 made the decision not to fund cheap fire safety infrastructure in Bangladeshi clothing factories that later burned down and killed more than 100 people, that Walmart's policy has been to contract out labor in its warehouses because that Walmart is not liable for the abuses that take place, or that Walmart has worked with the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, to make prison labor mandatory in some southern states, to increase mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug crimes in those same states, and then use said nonviolent criminals at free labor in its warehouses in those states, something about all of that feels bad, right? Something about it just doesn't seem good even though it all creates great and regular profits for shareholders. One step further. If profit were a universal norm, it shouldn't matter whether a company is privately held or publicly traded, right? So imagine a mom-and-pop grocery store. It employs the kids of family friends as cashiers and bag boys. Imagine that the mom-and-pop owners then take a page from Walmart's book and do everything legally permissible to keep their costs down and profits up. They make sure hours for those family-friend employees are low enough to disqualify them for any benefit. They pay the minimum wage and garnish any tips to keep it at the federal 725. They fire those family friends the minute that they get sick or pregnant or breathe a word about organized labor. It's all good in a profit sense. But we'd say that there was something wrong with that mom-and-pop couple. All I'm trying to establish with this good and bad and feels nonsense is that clearly, somewhere in our messy webs of ideas, we've got more than one norm to which we're responding. Even as a deregulated stock market has made it a fact that the norm we respond to as a society is profit, we all recognize cases where profit isn't the only consideration and others in which it barely factors at all. 
What's more, we as a people tend to think that we think of economics as an amoral field of behavior. We've baked that idea into our idioms, like, it's just business, even as we recognize in movies and books and shows that only total bastards ever say, it's just business. So if we all sort of recognize on this instinctual level of the conscience that profit isn't everything there is, then what is the be-all and end-all? Also, just for a momentary aside, interestingly, religious apologists throughout history have pointed to the conscience as one of the best proofs of the divine. Something is telling you what's right and wrong, and that must be the very voice of God. Early secular humanists thought that it was the voice of natural law, something innate to humanity that established a kind of universal ethics within each of us. Later thinkers, looking at the banality inherent in the evil of the Nazis and other definitely wrong moral actors, that the conscience is just the conscious manifestation of a code of ethics that your given society has impressed into your unconscious. I think that any one of those three ways works for us right now, though. Even if we as a society respond to the profit motive, we also as a society, even if it's not some universal truth, recognize that there's something wrong with it, according to our own code of ethics. Anyways, as far as what's good or bad or the point of an economy, I think we've got the exact same confusion of tensions that GM does. The point is kind of to make money, it's kind of to give people work, and it's kind of to provide a product for them to consume, and we in general don't make too much of an effort to figure out which one is primary, or if there's some other thing that supersedes, because we're so busy trying to stay afloat in the economy we've got without wasting time wondering what the point was. I think it's indicative that, even when we live in a so-called capitalist country, most Americans, largely through new fault of their own, haven't put much thought into what capital actually is, and how it works, and what makes our particular economy different from the market socialisms across the pond. So let's go way back to first principles to try to figure this thing out. We at least know what an economy is from past shows, like the one on trickle-down. You till the land and harvest wheat, but you don't know what to do with it. There's a guy who owns a mill who can't farm, but he knows how to turn your wheat into flour. I don't know how to do your thing or his thing, but I do know how to make bread. Now, the miller can pay for my bread with his flour, and you can pay for his mill with your grain. To complete things, you pay for my bread with your grain, and it goes around and around. Once you add in a few more people and products, the bartering gets more complicated, so we use some standard medium of exchange instead, whether that's seashells or gold coins or paper bills. And that is an economy. What would we say, if we just kept it to you and me and the miller, what is that economy for? Well, we've got different skills and resources, and it seems as though the point of that economy is to allow each of us to exchange what we have for what we need. Everybody works, and everybody eats. That feels about right, right? Now, if you look at economies through the ages, they sort of do that, but the point generally seems to have been to allow a ruling class to do what it wanted to. The minute a farmer figured out how to grow more than what he needed himself to live, somebody else figured out how to take that extra off of him. In Sumer and ancient Mesopotamia, even though they were growing wheat that then went to feed everybody who wasn't growing wheat, the farmer wasn't seeing the benefit of the extra that he produced. If it's you, me, and the miller, if you grow extra wheat, ideally you're getting extra bread. In ancient Sumer, all of that extra wheat went to support a ruling priestly and military class. Ostensibly, those priests and soldiers were providing the farmers with contact with the divine and protection from other ancient theocratic civilizations. The great invention being that you needed somebody else to get you in touch with God, and soldiers to protect you from being in exactly the same situation under some other group of priests and soldiers. 
You can look at societies through all of history, and the justifications for what the ruling class was doing changed, and sometimes they even sound pretty good to us. But in large part, they boil down to the ruling class doing what it wanted to do, usually with little or no relation to the peasantry that was farming the wheat that supported what they were doing. One of the constants of that ruling class, for example, was war-making. From philosophical Athenians to engineering-minded Romans to ostensibly Buddhist or Hindu-Indian princes, everybody made war, usually in a way that affected the peasantry only negatively when it affected the peasantry at all. In feudal European warfare, at least, as long as a new ruler didn't go out of his way to murder the peasantry, the average farmer couldn't care less who was technically his liegelord, because they were all bastards that siphoned off the agricultural profits to do what they wanted. So for all of history, I think we can pretty safely say that the de facto point of an economy was to generate extra, i.e. profit, so that the ruling class could do with it what it wanted, usually a mix of war-making and some other kind of cultural production. Almost always, but not always, unproductive. Greek philosophy sometimes resulted in real productive improvements, and Roman aristocratic showing off consisted in part of building incidentally productive public works like roads and aqueducts. And sometimes unproductive cultural work was just fine with the productive toiling masses, like the creation of plays and songs and popular culture from the Iliad right through to medieval passion plays and cathedrals with interesting stuff to look at on the ceiling while the priest drone on in a Latin you didn't understand. Now, capitalism in purely economic theory terms, coming closer to the present, is a system that produces extra, i.e. profit, and then uses that extra as capital to produce more profit and thus more capital ad infinitum. In our little economy, if you're a budding capitalist, when you produce that extra wheat, you're going to save up the extra until you can buy your own mill and make your own flour, while the miller's going to be saving for land or an oven and me the other two, etc. and etc. When it works, capitalism seems to be the democratization of the earlier use the extra to do what you want principle. Rather than siphoning off all of that extra to benefit the priest kings, a working capitalism, as we understand working, encourages everybody to make and keep their extra and to do whatever they want with it, whether that's productive, like you building a mill, or whether it's buying an iPhone or cup noodles instead of bread for a change. Whatever you want. And I think, I think, most people in the U.S. would be all right hanging their hat on that point. That the point of our economy is to let everyone generate extra, and then to enjoy that extra doing whatever it is that anyone wants to do with it. And those Americans might append, proudly, with a little swelling of their chest, that not only is that the point, but that capitalism, American capitalism, is the best system ever devised for creating that extra, that profit, that we get to do what we want with. And I think they're right. Less than 2%, 2% of the American population is actually engaged in any agricultural capacity, in providing the base necessities of life. 98 and some odd percent of us are all playing around, basically, with the extra. Now, those same proud Americans might follow up by saying that capitalism is also the world's best system for making sure the extra goes to the right people. And officially, that's the U.S. line on the thing. But I think that's exactly where it starts to fall apart. Because while we tend to think of a functioning capitalism as the kind that we had from the late 40s through the early 1970s, when people were working for good wages in those GM plants, and CEOs didn't make so much money, and everybody in general seemed to be getting along, as long as they were willing to work and to ignore that blacks and Latinos and Asians and women and the sexually different didn't have it so good. But it's beginning to seem, in the sense that we're beginning to discover, that maybe that wasn't functioning capitalism at all, but some kind of temporary exemption from real capitalism brought on by the war and a million other factors. 
Because in our reality, it seems to be that capitalism doesn't reward all of us equal to our willingness to work, with a volume of sweat pouring from our brows. In fact, it rewards people at the top regardless of effort, and often regardless also of talent, especially when the system is working exactly as economic theory would intend. Capital, that is, great amounts of extra resources, makes more capital, which creates more extra, which creates more and more and more. The wages of labor simply cannot compete. The shortage of workers and the massive government intrusion in the economy that allowed that golden pseudo-capitalist bubble to exist in the mid-century were symptoms of the Second World War, and we've just about shaken off any residual effects that they've had by now. We're getting back to the kind of capitalist status quo that we enjoyed in the 1890s. The rich, by virtue of getting rich, get richer. You could argue that they get there and stay there through hard work and intelligence, but the evidence of people like Jared Kushner should give the lie to that idea. Capital makes capital, and while capitalism might not decide who wins, once they've begun to do so, it's set up to keep them winning. This works, apparently, regardless of the political system in question. In Russia, an authoritarian state, the richest capitalists are the ones who run the government and allow themselves to get richer. In the U.S., the forces of capital have been rolling back the restrictions on political money and top marginal tax rates since the moment the war ended, with only a few speed bumps along the way. If everybody's got more or less the same amount of money, then money isn't too politically powerful. But if you've got a system that's very well designed to turn piles of money into even bigger piles of money, then before long money will run the system. And I think we're returning, basically, to the world historical model. The system exists de facto to produce profits, to produce extra, and to shunt that extra to the ruling class so that it can do what it wants. That that ruling class is now the Koch family and the Mercers and the Silicon Valley bros rather than the priest kings of Ur or Sumer doesn't at base change the model at work. Which brings us back to the point. We have a system in which we for the most part allow market forces to run our economy, and we as a people have a distaste for trying to restrain those same market forces. That might not be true for you or me in particular, but it seems indisputable that that's where we are as a country. We treat the market, which is, remember, just you and me and the miller trying to figure out how much wheat and flour and bread we want to trade each other, but scaled up. We treat the market as a kind of force of nature, totally beyond human control, versus simply a useful tool that we might use as a means to an end. Let me pound this one home, because I've been hearing that I need to be a little bit clearer. When we talk about the market, it is a real, tangible thing. It's not magic. It's just people trading with other people the world over. And it's an incredible tool for getting things to people at the price at which they're happy to pay for them. When we talk about the Soviet economy failing, or centrally planned economies failing, what we mean is that the Soviets tried to guess in a given year how much wheat they'd need how much it would cost to mill, and how much bread to make from it, all of it in advance. And it turns out that that's nearly impossible, and that if you just let the miller and me and you figure it out between us, we do it much faster, and agree on prices that will make us all much happier to work for them. It does bear mentioning, however, that central planning does seem to do wonders for rocketing a country from agriculture straight through to the space age in just a couple of decades. But an unrestrained market does not in any way necessarily work towards making you and me and the miller happier or better off. It works towards profit, and only works towards profit. And there are negative consequences, stuff that in economics we call externalities, all over the place. You discover, for example, that mined phosphate and nitrogen fertilizers grow way more wheat in a given year, 
but the runoff ends up poisoning our drinking water. The miller discovers that a roller mill is way faster and makes a pure white flour that keeps better, but we all die from malnutrition. In a year when your crops don't turn out so hot, I've already got that wheat that you paid me stored up, and I'm not just going to give away my bread to you, so I'll take over your farm after you're dead. The market, in other words, is a tool. It generates profit, but that's all it does. And we as a society, we've decided by determined effort and not thinking about it that the point of an economy is the same as its function, to generate more, to generate extra, to generate profit. And we've kept ourselves somehow entirely agnostic as to where that extra goes and what purpose it serves. Advocates of the system point to all the extra that capitalism generates and say, this is good. It works, and therefore it's good. There is a hammer, and because it is a hammer, it's good. I say that the extra of capitalism, the growth and profits, the fact that a hammer is a hammer, is totally neutral, totally amoral. It's only good or bad in terms of what it does. And allowing the ruling class to do what it wants, or indeed even allowing all of us some share of doing what we want, isn't necessarily good either. It's often bad. Allowing us all to do what we want is what made us obese, what got us climate change, what created mass pollution, Fox News, what got us exactly the country we have right now. And I'm not sure anybody could believe that that is an unalloyed good. The default American position is that the point of an economy is to be an economy. These things that are pretty clearly means have somehow become ends. You and me and the Miller, we don't trade the things we make because we really love trading stuff around. We trade them so that we can get what we need. The trading, the economy, is only a tool we use to achieve that end. So we here in the U.S., we have this incredible means, this capitalist economy that's better than all other known means at doing what it does, at generating extra profits, capital. And we've totally lost sight of what all that extra is supposed to do or where it's supposed to go, the end that it's supposed to serve, the thing it's supposed to achieve. Even as we acknowledge that capitalism is great at generating profit, we've got to realize that, like all other tools, it has downsides. It creates pollution. In this late stage, it creates ennui brought on by rampant consumerism. And it creates, as a rule, massive political, social, and economic inequalities. Okay, great. So we've got this tool, and it's really good at one thing, and it creates all this other stuff that sucks. So what should be the point of using this tool? What is the thing that we're going to do with this tool that makes all of the negative externalities worth it. This is the point at which my buddy Blaine is going to be less than happy with me. He told me, as I was writing this show, that he wishes I got to more positive programs in these shorts. Okay, things are broken, now what do we do with them? And I don't have a single answer there. I think there are some fairly good contenders. We could agree that a pretty excellent end of capitalism might be the elimination of poverty, first in our own country and then worldwide. That was the idea behind Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, which the Republican Party is now busy in the final stages of dismantling. We could borrow another Johnsonian idea and say that the end of capitalism might be that we could make sure that everyone in America can enjoy medical care or great schooling or a home or food to eat. And the GOP has been working against all of those things since the 1960s too. Just to hammer it again, why is the GOP fighting against trying to guarantee all of that for people who live in this country? because they've confused the means with the end. We have to eliminate, they say, all of these government initiatives that take some of the extra of capitalism and put it towards positive goals because that taking and using distorts the market. It hurts the tool. 
The GOP is leaving the house half-built to save the hammer. What we need more than anything as a country is to realize altogether that the hammer is just a hammer, and it's not worth anything on its own. Its only value to us is in what it can allow us to build. And once we finally wake up to that capitalism shouldn't be the end of capitalism, well, we've got the biggest, best, fastest, hardest hammer in the world. It could build anything imaginable. But the hammer won't do it on its own. It's just a hammer, and it could just as happily and easily and amorally build a death camp as a hospital. The fundamentally misguided idea that libertarians have, and that's infected the Republican Party, is that somehow the market, the means, the hammer, if we just let it alone, would build good things. But the hammer doesn't give a whit what it's building. And left alone, sure, it might put together a school or a space program. But historical experience should lead us to believe that it tends not to, and that it's much more inclined towards the mansions and death camps if we leave it alone long enough. So, Buddy Blaine, step one is to realize that the market's neither a god nor a religion that serves one. It's nothing more nor less than an excellent tool. Step two is to decide, with as much of the country as we can bring along, what would be a most excellent thing to build with that tool. If we all make it through step one and then decide together that the best possible thing to build is a country where the wealthy get wealthier and we keep our mitts off the market, well, then step three is to join hands and walk into the warm, welcoming waters of the ocean and end this little experiment in consciousness and free will together. But if, once we realize that government interference in the market isn't a heresy against our god, but that it's the hand of the people wielding the hammer, if once we've got there, we decide that the point of the hammer is that nobody should have to live in poverty and fear and hunger, that nobody should have to worry about a roof or a doctor or any one of the thousands of other worthy things that we might make with this mighty hammer, then step three, step three is to start building.